2: We are back. Okie dokie. So today, we are going to speak on behalf of Kermit the Frog. Is that your Constantine accent? Yeah, I really, I can't do it.
3: Kermit the Frog here. It's good. Nailed it. Nailed it. For those who don't know, that was Muppets Most Wanted. Very much worth saying. Has Tina Fey. Excellent stuff. And Anthony Bourdain, I think. Wait, no. Not Anthony Bourdain. What the heck is his name? Anthony Bourdain is a very different human. Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. I'll remember in the middle of this episode and then tell you all. (laughs) So. Welcome, everyone, to a Eric and Xander in the same place edition of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, and also part of the Agora Podcast Network. Why are we in the same room, Eric? Oh, right. Actually, so by the time you listen to this, it'll be too late. <laughs> you should have gotten your tickets sooner when we told you before, but Xander has come out to Boston the Sound Education Podcast Conference at Harvard University. Oh, yes. Yes. And we will both be giving talks there.
2: So Xander is talking about... World War Three. Title of the talk is still not World War Three. why popular foreign policy predictions usually aren't right. And yours, Eric, is? It pays to polarize. His is more succinct.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, and I'm talking about the same shit I always talk about because guess what? I've been talking about this for four years and all of a sudden people are like, whoa, why are we so polarized? <laughs> As if I haven't been trying to tell them for the past four years. Yes. I'm just not good at reaching a big audience. Except you guys. We love you. You're our favorites. You are our favorites. So today, what we're actually doing is a listener Q&A. So we have a number of questions or like requests from listeners to talk about this, talk about that, ask us this, ask us that. And I think we could actually at least touch on everything that was asked over the last month or two in a single episode and then expand on stuff later. What we decided to do rather than make a whole series was just catch everything a little bit and then expand on stuff where it makes sense going forward. Some of the questions are simple. Some of the questions looked for answers that we can't give because we'd be doing the thinking for you, but we're going to help you think about it in a different way. So on our list of questions at the top is
2: Yemen. What's going on in Yemen? Yes, this question comes to us via Twitter. The Twitters from Russell at TRHSWC. I don't know what that stands for, but thanks, Russell. Yes. So the war in Yemen, you could easily do a whole podcast on the war in Yemen. It's a very complicated war. It is a civil war that kind of got started around the time of the Arab Spring, but really became a bona fide Civil War in 2014 and drew Saudi Arabia's intervention in 2015. And right now, the lay of the land is basically this. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, as well as a number of allies from Africa, like Sudan has contributed a number of ground forces and Egypt kind of, but really not on the ground, more in the water, are all involved in this war against Well, it's complicated, but the main force that the Arab coalition is fighting is this entity called the Houthis, who you may know because
3: we've discussed their outrageous motto and flag a number of times. Let's see if I know it from the top of my head. Death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. Did I get it right?
2: God is great. Oh, God is great. Of course. Death to America. Death to Israel, curse on the Jews, victory to Islam. You got it pretty right. I was pretty close. It has yeah. a nice ring to it. It's It's
3: got to be the <laughs> single most transparently evil, you know, motto in history. But, you know, anyway, these are the Houthis. If you remember their crazy flag, that's who they are. But who are they really, Xander?
2: So, at least as it relates to this war... They're mainly discussed as Iranian proxies, but they're really – they are a clan that has existed in Yemen for a long time. They are Shias, whereas many of the Arab powers fighting them are predominantly Sunni countries. So there's that aspect of the civil war as well. And the Houthis have just generally felt disenfranchised in Yemen by uh, the assortment of different leaders who have ruled it for a while. So when all of the uprisings following the Yemen Spring sufficiently Arab Spring. What did I say? You said Yemen Spring. Oh, my gosh. Arab Spring. I'm a little underslept right now, guys and girls, so just give me the benefit of the doubt. Yes, the Arab Spring. Yes, that that revolutionary thing. The the Houthis, amongst other actors, took advantage of the opportunity of a weak central government to try to take some power for themselves. And being Shia and Yemen being right on the southern border of Saudi Arabia, important— Iran kind of said, eh, yeah, sure, we'll give you some guns and money. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And it, it's an interesting dynamic because for Saudi Arabia, this is a really major threat because they can't allow Iran to establish a foothold on their southern border. Not only is that an immediate land threat, but Yemen also has a major port called Hodaida, which sits right at the, the Bab al-Mandab Strait, which is the outlet of the Red Sea into the Gulf of Aden and in the Indian Ocean. We'll, we'll post a map. Yeah. What's important about the Red Sea is it is a major source of maritime traffic. I think it's something like 10% of the world's cargo in terms of value goes through the Red Sea. Really? Yeah, it's a Holy huge amount. Yeah. It's, it's like $600 billion worth of trade going from Europe to Asia. Goes through the Suez Canal, through the Red Sea, through the Babal Mandab. And, and that's why you have a bunch of Somali pirates there. Somalian pirates, we. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> Somalian pirates. If you them. don't watch South Park, you don't know what I'm talking about. And you're just offended. Now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, hashtag cancel South Park. Hashtag cancel South Park. So this is a problem for Saudi Arabia, which has a big coast on the Red Sea and which also likes being able to, you know, transport things like oil exports through the red sea so it's a major threat to saudi arabia in a number of different ways and in order for saudi arabia to really be quote-unquote safe it needs to eliminate the houthis they can't be there anymore but for iran to keep threatening the saudis they just need to keep the war going so it's kind of this asymmetric balance now with everything going on in iran we've talked about this a little before they're struggling with an economy at home they're struggling with u.s sanctions and all that In the last couple of days, really, we've seen signs that maybe some serious steps are being taken to begin to maybe think about ending the war.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Serious steps being taken to maybe begin to think about beginning the end of the war. Yeah,
2: it's... uh, Because on the one hand, you have uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and Defense Mattis coming out and saying, no, 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 this needs to end. We need an immediate 30-day ceasefire. This is too much. A lot of people are saying, well, the U.S. is finally speaking out against the Yemeni civil war because of this affair with Khashoggi, who Saudi Arabia killed. But in addition to the statements from the U.S., you have Saudi Arabia at the end of October. Saudi Arabia probably asked Pakistan to mediate between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, in regards to the Yemeni civil war. We we don't know for sure. Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, kind of came out and offered it himself, but it was immediately following a trip to Riyadh in which he was asking Saudi Arabia for money. So, you know, put put the the uh, the figures together. And then Iran, just in the last couple of days, said they would support Pakistan's role as a mediator as well. Uh, at the same time, the Arab coalition just sent 10,000 additional forces to Hudaida, mainly African allies, and conducted some of the largest airstrikes you've seen in Hodeida in terms of numbers dead. So it may be that they're beginning to increase the tempo of the assault on Hodaida in, in collaboration with the onset of negotiations to establish some degree of leverage. Uh, Which is actually pretty common. Yeah. Like when, when
3: you see someone really forcing an uptick in offensive capability, it's either because they're going for a killing blow or they're trying to increase their bargaining power. Good example is the Tet Offensive yeah. in Vietnam when the Vietnamese launched the Tet Offensive, they got butchered, right? It was a 10 to 1 KIA ratio or casualty ratio. They didn't achieve any of, they didn't like capture any territory. They just shocked the Americans into leaving because the Americans thought they were close to victory. Um, And the Tet Offensive convinced them like, no, there's still a lot of operational capacity and will Mm -hmm. among the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Where what could be going on with Saudi Arabia is either that they may be, one, just trying to scrape, you know, scrape a better position for the talks. They may be trying to convince the Houthis that they want to talk because Saudi Arabia has a lot more where that came from. Good example being, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Why did we drop two bombs? We wanted to imply that there might be more if you didn't just surrender already. And so... Saudi Arabia may also be saying, look, there's more where this comes from if you don't come to the table and do something reasonable here. So there could be all sorts of reasons why an increase in fighting is actually associated
2: with a desire to talk and end the war. Yeah, especially with all those other signs. Um, but anyways, so that's what's gone on in the last couple of days. At a very high level, you can view as a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi Arabia has not had a lot of ground forces in Yemen, the UAE has, and the UAE has a much stronger presence in South Yemen, whereas Saudi Arabia is perhaps maybe obviously more concerned about North Yemen because it's right on the border with Saudi Arabia. And actually, we've seen some signs that the interests between these two allies have been diverging a little bit. Yeah, I won't get into too much of the detail here, but Saudi Arabia clearly wants all of Yemen to be cleared of the Houthis, whereas the UAE, maybe it seems, is more concerned with securing... The southern coast of Yemen for itself for its own maritime purposes. And it's been both, but especially the UAE, have been building up a lot of forces, um, bases in East Africa and securing routes along the way would would be a good thing. So there has been some talk of the possibility of a division in Yemen into a north and south Yemen, which there was a north and south Yemen before, I think it was 1990, which when is when they were unified. So that is, man, it's really hard to do a snapshot of the Yemeni civil war, isn't it? Yeah. What's also interesting
3: is I'm looking at sort of the most updated map here is that part of the southern coast, not the southwest, although Aden or Aden is occupied by us, is the Southern Transitional Council, the STC, yeah. which is a, a separatist group. And it's worth noting that Yemen used to be North Yemen and South Yemen, and it got combined in the early 1990s, if I remember correctly. And this is one of those may not have been the best idea sort of deals, large extent due to the fact that you smashed together these, you know, these two very different groups and said, good luck getting along. But it looks like South Yemen may be trying to come back. And in particular, the STC is supported by UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And so specifically what might be going on here is that, you know, the UAE may be looking for a breakaway semi-government, semi-autonomous region that it controls you know that is separate from the Houthis. So the Houthis are not the UAE's problem, and they can just you know have bases in that in Aden and in the you know the southern coast.
2: Whereas Saudi Arabia's sort of main man in Yemen, by in Yemen I mean in exile in yeah. Riyadh, Hadi, yeah, Abd Rabba now, pronounce anything Hadi, Hadi, it's Hadi, and they want a unified Yemen because they want a secure Yemen completely clear of the Houthis and not having all the Houthis rounded up in North Yemen right. with the UAE safe with its coast in South Yemen. yeah. So that And the SDC, the group, the breakaway group that Eric just mentioned, in January of this year actually ended up fighting in Aden with some of Hadi's allies. So you actually had Saudi Arabian proxies fighting United Arab Emirate proxies, even though the UAE and Saudi Arabia are allies fighting Houthis. So you can begin to see just some of the shades of sheer complexity of this conflict, and that's all of this is just the geopolitics of it. There's also the humanitarian aspect of, of it, which it's hard to know, you know, how accurate these estimates are. But some, some people are saying that three million people might be at risk of suffering from famine. severe famine, which is on the scale of famine that we haven't seen since like Ethiopia in the in like the late '80s, early '90s when. You know, literally millions of people starved. And so when you hear about the blockade of the port of Hodeidah by the Saudi coalition in order to prevent Iran shipping more arms into the Houthis, which yeah. have a not a dominant position in Hodeidah anymore, but they're still there. That's what's going on. And the UN is saying oh, that would be a humanitarian crisis because you blockade the port. You can't send food in either. What are all these people
3: going to do? Yes. Brings up an interesting note that technology and and sort of the global market have reached a point that mass famine is only caused by government action anymore, right? You know, there's there's like low-scale famine, but there is not like, oh, fairly stable region suddenly no longer has access to food because the global market has, has reached a point where it just makes up for that. That is a thing of the past, except when governments get involved, hmm. um, which I need to like probably do a little bit of fact-checking on whether that's strictly speaking true, but- You know, because there is still starvation in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, but sudden famine seems to be, you know, the examples we can think of over the 20th century seem to be government-caused. Which is interesting. Hmm. Anyway, so that's what's going on in Yemen right now. I'm actually looking at the map, and I see that since I last checked in, what's interesting is the the Hadi government forces have been crawling up the west coast towards Al-Hadidah and have made headway into the city. And, you know, it looks like you know, who knows if they have any chance of taking control of it. But if they were to take control of it, they would have control of that port and might not need to blockade
2: it anymore in order to deny,
3: you know, blockade their own country anymore in order to deny armaments to the Houthis.
2: Yeah, they're trying to creep up along the coast and I think probably surround Hadidah the best they can. Yeah. And starve them out. Yeah. It's ugly. It's
3: one of the crappier wars and also... I don't want to say unavoidable, but it is driven by, actually, as Xander's going to talk about Saturday at Sound Education Conference, it's driven by the systemic mutual insecurities between Saudi Arabia and Iran, where you know we can sit here all we want and say, like, stop. Right. But if one of them stops, it's security relative to the other between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's security relative to the other drops and therefore is at greater risk of the other you know hurting it in a substantial way. Yeah. And so you can't just look at someone and be like, "Well, you're bad, stop." Cuz they're they're going to say, I, "Look, it's it's awful, but, you know, I you know, my security is paramount, right? Security tends to come before the luxury of being a moral good guy actor."
2: Yeah, it's pretty depressing to think about sometimes, but I really think it is the it is the most accurate way of understanding a lot of how the world works.
3: Right. And this is where we'll we'll get on our horse a little bit about The notion of like geopolitics and like quote realpolitik, and hate that word. Yeah, exactly. And you know, one of the things worth noting is that the way that realists like ourselves look at the international system is we're looking at it. We're trying to explain why nations do what they do, not what is good, right? So we're not advocating for oh, a country should you know do whatever is necessary for its security at the cost of you know human life and suffering in another country. We're just saying that that is what they do, yeah. um, and and asking asking a country to stop it is not going to stop it.
2: And just so you know, uh, Eric used scare quotes when he said "realists." So yeah, yeah, that context is important. Yes, I think that's Yemen. I think that's Yemen. So show, we I'll had see. a
3: question about social security. Can you bring up the image that was brought up? Yeah, someone someone wants to post an image at us and have us talk about it. We're going to take it as it comes. So I'm going to let you read that, and I've got I've got some thoughts about it.
2: Go on and check the email. Check the email.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Strombad. Yeah, anytime. I bet many of our listeners are too young for that. They're like, what the F is a strombad? That's depressing. Yeah. And the dragon
2: comes in the night. Here it is. Right. <laughs> and
3: the dragon comes in the oh. night.
2: So this, <laughs> this one is from Massachusetts. It's a at, cool name. At, Oh, I like this at most Maiorum with the zero. Oh. And if you don't know what that is, go read Mike Duncan's book on Rome. Yes,
3: uh-, uh, the storm before the storm. I think, frankly, if if people are you know, I know people are looking for historical ancillaries to what's going on in the world in the United States right or in the Western world in the United States right now, and they're like, but is it Nazi Germany? But is it? But is it? But is it? And no, <laughs> it's not, it's late Roman Republic.
2: I think it is a much. After comparison, yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not inevitably late Roman Republic, but if we're looking for a model of failure, it is late Roman Republic, not late Weimar Republic. Yeah. So we'll get back to that, actually. Yes. Because that was a question someone had recently. Actually, a lot of people, they said, is, is it Hitler time? And we'll talk about how we should evaluate whether it's Hitler time or some other time.
2: <laughs> the, uh, the, the worst part of a sketch comedy show ever.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, have you seen The Producers? Yes. Okay, yeah. It's
2: springtime
3: for Hitler Hitler and Germany. Exactly. Great show if you haven't seen it. (laughs) Mel Brooks. Brilliant. Also Broadway. Anyway, so Massachusetts whatever sent in an image that said the following. Social Security fun facts. Social Security and Medicare. So it's apparently Social Security and Medicare fun facts. Social Security and Medicare are paid for with a separate tax. They add nothing to the national debt. Social Security has a $2.5 trillion surplus. Congress has, quote, borrowed trillions from Social Security to pay for government spending. So when Republicans say we need to cut Social Security in order to balance the federal budget, what they really mean is, quote, we've taken trillions from Social Security to pay for unfunded wars, tax cuts for the rich and corporate subsidies. We need to cut your benefits so we don't have to pay it back. All right. Lots to unpack here. So, again, you threw an image at me and, and now I've got to take it on as it is. So what what about this is actually a fact. So one thing that is definitely a fact is that Congress has borrowed money from Social Security to pay for government spending. I'm I'm fairly certain it has not borrowed trillions. Um, that is a huge amount. And I don't think I don't think social security ever had that much in its lockbox. If you know the term lockbox, lockbox. Um, lockbox. This is a thing in the late 1990s and early 2000s about whether the government should be able to borrow from the lockbox over short time periods, sort of as a a free credit line. And for a while, the answer was yes. And then the answer was no. What I need to look up is whether Social Security has a $2.5 trillion surplus. I'm pretty sure the answer, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that is just wrong if we think about what the meaning of surplus is. It may be that there's 2.5 million in the lockbox to pay for upcoming entitlements owed. But that does not mean there's a surplus. A surplus means you've got cash sitting around that are not that is not earmarked to be spent. Right. So like when the federal government had a surplus in 2000, it was like, "Oh, we can literally do anything with this." Right? I mean, you need to pass a law about it, but like this money isn't owed to someone. Yeah. Whereas the money that's sitting around in the Social Security account is not a surplus in the sense that it's not owed to someone. It is owed to people. It's owed to people in the future. So one of the things I don't like about this, oh yeah, and then Social Security and Medicare are paid for with a separate tax. They add nothing to the national debt. The first thing is certainly true, right? So if you look at payroll taxes, if you look at your, your check that you get, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid are all separate. Now, in the case of... Medicare and Medicaid, unlike social security, there is not a lockbox. That money just gets put into the pie and it gets divided up, right? Because like generally money is fungible. The reason we talk about a social security lockbox is because that is money that is generally not fungible with other revenues that the government takes in. Medicare and Medicaid taxes coming in are like they're labeled as Medicare and Medicaid taxes, but it doesn't mean that that money is put in a lockbox, much in the same way that cigarette taxes, oh, that's a bad example, Such a, much of the way that like tolls for roads don't only go to paying for roads, right? It's a road tax. And to some extent, much of that toll money is, you know, it's sort of like it's, it, it is built because it pays for the bonds that the government took out to build the road in the first place but it doesn't mean that it's only legally earmarked for that road. Same thing with Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare can be Medicare can be and is supplemented by other revenues. So that one that one's wrong. And then saying they add nothing to the national debt is also like is not true. Social security if it doesn't ever have to be subsidized will add nothing to the national debt. It may have to get subsidized. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The only thing I can say for certain, I'm pretty confident, will never add to the national debt, is the United States Postal Service. So that pays for itself with stamps. Always okay. has, has huh. never been subsidized. Go Postal Service. Your tax dollars do not pay for the Postal Service. They're You're... running a loss. They are, but does... they're in debt right now. Uh... But they're not being sub... They are not being subsidized by tax dollars.
2: Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. See, I learned new things on this show.
3: So there you go. So the You walk into a post office, like, there's going to be a sign somewhere that reminds you that no effing tax dollar has ever gone to the Postal Service. So anyway, Medicare can add to the national debt. And in particular, as, like, again, since that money is not thrown into a lockbox, uh, you just have to, like, in order to determine how it adds to the national debt, you need to, like, look over actually multiple time periods. Because you need to look at the money that someone put in during their working years for Medicare, for example, to see how like, the average worker put in for Medicare during their working years and then subtract the average amount that is spent on them when they are retired and getting Medicare benefits in order to determine whether it contributes to the national debt. I don't know the answer. So let's talk about Social Security. Oh, yeah, the last thing. A quote. This is in quotes. So what Republicans really mean is we've taken trillions from Social Security to pay for unfunded wars, tax cuts for the rich, and corporate subsidies, we need to cut your benefits so we don't have to pay it back. Has trillions been taken from Social Security and not paid back? I don't know. I don't know. I would have to look that up. Is it to pay for specifically for unfunded wars, tax cuts for the rich, and corporate subsidies? Well, it turns out money's fungible. So every dollar that gets into the federal government is spent in an even pie along all things that the government spends on including things besides wars, tax cuts for the rich and corporate subsidies. So this is clearly a, a biased. Uh, I'm just going to come out and say like this is clearly the biased piece. There are some factual problems. The last thing to note about Social Security is that um, I think there's a straw man problem with this. So the biggest one is that there are members of Congress of both parties that are talking about a potential upcoming problem. And it is this people are living longer. A lot of people retired earlier because they like lost their jobs in their like late 50s during the recession. And and there is, you know, because of the baby boomers, there is suddenly a huge slug of of people retiring. And so suddenly social security is gonna hit with a lot of like a lot of money that it owes. So when we talk about like if if we hear, for example, like if the $2.5 trillion number is accurate, like again, that money is owed to people who are retiring. Like who are retired and are going to receive those benefits, you know, now and later or are about to retire. So, again, it's just not a surplus. That's wrong. But what what I don't know and I would need to look up, but I know is being talked about is, hey, if we predict that people are going to be living longer than they used to, are we going to have enough money from what they paid? Or are they going to receive more in benefits under the current system than they paid into it? And if people are receiving more in benefits under the current system than they paid into it right? You start running a loss and then you have to start subsidizing it or cutting back benefits. What does cutting back benefits in this case mean? The only thing I've heard people talking about is just increasing the social security age. Because when social security was created, it had an assumed life expectancy, right? So people retire at 65, they die at some age, you know, on average. If that life expectancy is going up, you're now paying out more than you expected in the original thing. So if you're bringing in the same amount of money and paying out more than you expected, you're going to run a loss. And this is going to be an issue. This is a real issue that Congress has to grapple with regardless of whether or not. And again, I don't know for certain without looking it up, but whether or not borrowing against the lockbox has not been repaid yet. Like if it hasn't, that's one That's that's one problem. But I think saying that the lockbox borrowing is the only reason and and- Republicans spending on wars is the only reason that Congress is talking about increasing the age of receiving benefits from Social Security it is just not factually supported. So there we go. Turns out it's complicated.
2: It's complicated. You mean there's not a, a simple single sentence one-liner to explain everything?
3: Hashtag whatever party I'm not is bad. Exactly. That's yeah. what it
2: is. So let's see. What, what did we have next on the list, Eric? Uh, sports in Geopolitics
3: Sports so, Do you have that That Facebook message up? Yes Okay great
2: One is from Tanner Wilson Hitting us up on the Facebooks Which At Reconsider Pod If you want to ask us questions there You may and, and just know that
3: If you give me Hey this is a Biased piece with questionable facts in it Please talk about it Just know that I'm going to I'm probably not going to take it kindly
2: What? Alright <laughs> Tanner asks Curious question about China and the upcoming 2023 Asian Cup vote at the end of this month. If China ends up winning the vote from the Asian Football Confederation to host the 2023 Asian Cup against South Korea, this could be another way to open up China to Asia and beyond. How do you think China, or more specifically the Chinese Football <sighs> Association could use this as an opportunity to build up things like the Chinese Super League and get much higher level of talented foreign players to play in China, as well as potentially the Chinese national team. Also, how could the Belt and Road Initiative be used to help build up the Asian Cup? I'll admit, it's a good question. And, <laughs> and, I, and I have to caveat this with, I'm really... Not much of a sports guy. And I'm a bit of a sports
3: guy, but I'm I'm like an American football and hockey guy and not so much a soccer guy and not so much an international soccer guy and definitely not so much an East Asian soccer guy.
2: Yeah. and so with with the, with that caveat out there, I mean the first the first sort of somewhat comparable example that came to my mind asking this question because it's talking about uh, opening China up to the rest of Asia, yeah, maybe yeah. helping with China's uh, big infrastructure project, which is what Belt and Road Initiative is, was the uh, ping pong diplomacy of the yeah. 1970s when China opened up to the West and Nixon's triangular diplomacy in an attempt to push back against the Soviet Union. But The thing is, ping pong diplomacy did not enable the opening. There were fundamental, deep, underlying security interests that were shared between China and the US at that point, which had to do with limiting the extent of the Soviet Union's power. And the the episode of ping pong diplomacy, which is really a hell of a story. If you're not familiar with it, it's just a, a really cool story. Go, pretty cool. go look up ping pong diplomacy. I think there was a movie, but if, uh, Forrest Gump, the, that was part yeah. of the movie, right? Yep. So anyways, go look that up. But it, it was sort of a, like an event in the process. It wasn't a real driver. I, China would not have opened up to the U.S. if China did not have really deep security interests that depended on cooperation with the U.S. just because they played a couple of games of ping pong. Similarly, I doubt that a game of soccer, even if it's a really important game of soccer, is. is it's not that I, I doubt, I really strongly don't think that a game of soccer is going to change any of the geopolitics that ha- that that are going on in between China and the rest of Asia as well as the belt and road initiative which is dictated by geopolitics and economics you know a game of soccer isn't going to magically make 4 trillion dollars worth of money appear for China to use in their investments across southeast and central asia and the balkans and all
3: that yeah i mean i think the the thing i potentially want to push back on is like is diplomacy does diplomacy matter and i think that's something that like you know, the, again, sneer quote, realist school gets some pushback on is it tends to lean towards this notion of inevitability, right? That like your geopolitical interests, your security needs, your geographic relationship to your neighbors, your economic needs will drive what happens. It may not drive the outcome, but will drive what's conflict, whose friend, whose foe, where there's conflict and where there's, there's harmony and cooperation. And these all happen for these systemic reasons. And so to some extent, like maybe, maybe walking back a little bit from sports as diplomacy, but just like diplomacy in general, right? We could replace soccer game with like meeting, right? So like, you know, or or other, or other like diplomatic event. And I think we could always make the case that it doesn't matter. And so I feel like, you know, there's this risk of being reductionist or monoist where we say like, look, you know, no diplomatic effort or outreach or, or symbolism or show, you know, matters at all. And so why would people do it? I don't know if, if you've got a thought on that, but I at least want to like at least want to like make sure we're not saying're we're, we're that, that we're like acknowledging the complexity here that you know like look, the world runs around and does a lot of dip- diplomatic stuff. and a lot of it seems to be BS, right? Oh, yeah. Like in particular with like the way diplomats speak to each other, you sort of go like, look, we all know that you don't mean what you just said. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it, but we do it anyway. Yeah. And so you sometimes do wonder what's the point? And so maybe I'm just asking, what's the point?
2: I don't think diplomacy is meaningless, and I don't think it it doesn't do anything. I think if you you look at the structural elements, sort of these geopolitical factors that we're talking about, that may limit the menu. You may Mm. have three things to order from, and instead of 10 things, right, you don't have 10 options, you have three options, but the way in which diplomacy or choices are carried out may increase the probability of one or the other happening more. Yeah. Um, I mean, one one example that comes to mind just because I, I was involved doing some research with it was back in August when Assad and Syria had surrounded this territory called Idlib in the northwest mm. of Syria, and everyone was saying... Okay, well, Assad's going to carry out this major, massive offensive. and It's going to be a bloodbath meat grinder. Yeah, everyone. Everyone was saying that. And he didn't. And there were only really a couple of options here, right? He could have launched the attack or he could have not launched the attack.
3: Like, the, the, like, lead up to conflict was driven by systemic issues. But, like, the fact that it
2: resolved without people dying. That's true. Was yeah.
3: was diplomatic genius.
2: Yeah. That's, man, that's a, that's a particularly scary case. Because, like, there's this one Russian side with, like, three commanding officers. And they all had to, like, vote to launch a nuclear weapon. And two of them did. Yeah. And one of fought back against it. Yeah. Any, anyway. Well, there we go. That's, that's where, you know,
3: that's where people's hearts and minds matter. In the immediate term, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that may be a case where, look, Russia had systemic incentives to, you know, have a presence in have like a, an offensive military presence in the West to threaten the United States. So the United States could not just threaten Russia willy nilly without risk consequence mm-hmm. that like they needed that. So they were going to do it. And there were some probably diplomatic reasons that it ended up being Cuba as opposed to somewhere else. But it was going to happen. And then, you know, the the inevitable, like, friction of conflict there, the, or the, the friction of conflict there was somewhat inevitable based on the circumstances, but how it got resolved was due to diplomacy. And it involved, for example, I mean, it involved that that one moment of not voting to launch the missiles, but it also involved the United States negotiating pulling its offensive missile capability out of Turkey, right? Yeah. In exchange for Russia pulling back out of Cuba. And so these diplomatic moves they don't turn foe into friend, but they can allow you to manage conflict in a less bloody way, mm-hmm. or or manage friendship in a more effective way, right? Mm-hmm. And get more out of it. I like that, and that actually kind of squares the circle with Mister Zach Twomley as well, who talks about you know war being when diplomacy fails. Where I've always kind of been like, well. You know, I feel like conflict is driven by more systemic issues. It's not just a failure of diplomacy. There's something that makes people tend towards going to war with each other. But maybe it's that systemic stuff ten you know trends people towards conflict with each other, but a shooting war when people are dying may not be as inevitable. It may be the case that the conflict can be resolved in other ways.
2: That I agree with. Yeah.
3: Mm, cool.
2: All right. So thank you, Tanner. Yeah. What other questions do we have? So
3: we had... So, yeah. Sorry we didn't talk about soccer. We're just not going to be able to say much about it. But uh-huh. all we can say is that, you know, China's already on the road to this. And it may be the case that, you know, being able to win some hearts and minds through, you know, sports leagues and and kind of other, like, cultural integration bits may, you know, smooth the smooth the road. Sure. Make, you know, make it a little bit easier for immigration to happen and and... And such like that. So, it you know, it may have some impact. Cool. Did we talk about Kashagi already?
2: We mentioned him, but we didn't get into the deeps and depths of it.
3: So I think here's the question. The question I got from a friend recently, and I don't have a good answer. The friend will, will remain unnamed because they did not, like, post it on Twitter publicly. They asked me. Was, like, okay. So Saudi Arabia killing Kashagi was, I mean, obviously horrifying from a human perspective. But, like... Kind of from a big picture perspective, like, I feel like Saudi Arabia probably, he said, like, I feel like Saudi Arabia probably like, kills people all the time. And why, other than being in Turkey, like, why is this suddenly a thing?
2: I mean, the reason it's a thing in the West is because he's been made out to be this pro-reform, anti-Bin Salman journalist who fled to, to Washington and lived as a, in exile, writing critical opinion pieces in the Washington Post. And how dare they just, you know, violate his human rights. And yeah, okay, that's that's right. But Saudi Arabia kills people all the time. The US kills people all the time. And Turkey kills people all the time. And Turkey is not exactly friendly to journalists. If you've been following anything in the last two years since the coup attempt, right? They've, they've jailed lots of journalists. And yet you have Erdogan coming out and saying, oh, tra- tragic, tragic that what they did to this journalist. We would never... Never silence anyone in our country, which is nonsense. But how this could matter. Potentially, if the international sort of response is so acrimonious that the U.S. feels it can no longer work with Saudi Arabia or Saudi Arabia's current leaders. And I'm not convinced that that's the case, frankly. But I've heard the argument made. Then you could argue that that kind of opens up the opens up the opportunity for some members of the Saudi royal family who have been sidelined by uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and his father King Salman, to step back in and create divisions in the family and create a power struggle within Saudi Arabia, which could then open up Saudi Arabia, you know, to pressure by Iran or or whoever, right? Maybe, maybe. I certainly don't think that the U.S. is going to change its approach to Saudi Arabia over the murder of one person, because at the end of the day, the U.S.'s strategy for dealing with Iran relies on Saudi Arabia and Israel, and especially with the sanctions coming up on November 4th, uh, the oil sanctions on Iran. I don't know if we'll publish this episode before then or not, maybe not, but it's after November 4th. Sanctions are already back on. Bing. 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 The the U.S. is depending on Saudi Arabia to increase oil production to offset the decline in oil export from Iran. So the U.S. is not going to shoot its own strategy in the foot that it's been pursuing fairly aggressively all year because of this. It's just not going to happen. You might say that that's not right or or morally egregious, but it's just not going to happen. So if someone else steps in and says, look, I I can handle the Saudi state better than the crown prince has right now, and I'm not going to incur all this unnecessary attention from the world and... Force your senators to, you know, implement more sanctions that the executive can't really control. I'm gonna manage this better. The US will probably go, okay, fine, we don't care. Increase oil productions and push back oil production and push back against Iran. We have a deal. That would still probably weaken the Saudi state to the extent that you'd have divisions in the family. Right. Maybe maybe that could happen. But uh, there's so much about this Khashoggi thing that doesn't make sense, like that still haven't been answered. Like for example, the image of him is like a reformer that is you know, pro-West and liberal and all that is don't only kinda true. He he did write a lot of really critical things of the current regime, but his all is he's also a consummate insider. Like he was the aide de camp to Prince Turkey Al-Faisal or Turkey bin Faisal, who's the head of Saudi intelligence and the ambassador to the UK and US and Jamal Khashoggi interviewed Osama bin Laden, which doesn't seem like a big deal because like, oh well, journalist interview but but Osama bin Laden was like notorious for never, ever giving interviews to anyone. Right. And somehow he had close enough connections either with the Saudi royal family and or Al-Qaeda to be able to get an interview. Awkward. His uncle, Adnan Khashoggi, was a really famous financier, Saudi financier and arms smuggler who was involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. And, you know, to a degree... Business runs in the family in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm not going to say that definitively and all the time, especially now, but as more the case, you know, a couple of decades ago. So it's not like this guy has been like on the bleeding edge of, of liberal progressive movement in Saudi Arabia. He has criticized the crown prince, but in part because he was a lot of people that he was close with rounded up at the end of last year. And that's when he fled Saudi Arabia. Right. Because he was afraid he was going to get rounded up. And then he came to the U.S. and started writing critical things about the crown prince who did the rounding up. So there's that. And the other thing that just I still don't get, and I haven't found an answer to anywhere, is he purportedly entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to obtain a marriage license. Because according to uh, Turkish law, if you are getting married... You have And you have been married before, you need proof of a divorce. So that makes sense, right? Except, okay, so we've just established this guy's super well-connected, right? Right. He knows people. And if you go online and do like a Google search for like weddings in Turkey, you'll find lots of either luxury hotels or tourist services that will arrange all of those marriage documents for you. Mm. And that's for like plebs like me let alone the nephew of one of the most notorious former arms smuggler in Saudi Arabia. So I just don't buy that that he actually had to go in in person to the Saudi consulate. Something else had to be going on. And I just I just don't know what it is. Weird. Yeah, I mean, my my take is it seems more like a
3: like a mystery piece that will be done on not TLC, but like the history channel will do a special on in like 10 years or something after the details come out. Like it's a it's a drama piece. It's still awful, right? Like, people getting butchered and murdered is terrible. But it doesn't it, – it it seems hard to think that – this is the kind of thing, again, in your talk on Saturday, you're going to be talking about the difference between triggers and systemic drivers. And, like, if there was a systemic driver for the United States and Saudi Arabia to break up, like, this would be a great trigger, right? It would be a great excuse, a great cashless belly. Not actually belly, but –
2: yeah, no, it, it would be a trigger for deterioration relations. Right, Yeah.
3: right. But if there's a – if the, the underlying structure that made the relationship there in the first place – like what's interesting about Saudi Arabia and the United States is that they're allies, despite the fact that like the moral frameworks of their government probably could not be more different, right? And so and, – and for that reason, a lot of Americans question why and, and question whether we should have a good relationship, a strong relationship with Saudi Arabia or whether we should consider them a pariah. And of course – You know, this will all of this will make you very cynical very quickly if you start thinking about it too much. You'll be like, wait a minute. We pick and choose who we call pariahs, and we we have excuses to call them pariahs, but really they're, oh, wait, they're just like structurally opposed to our security interests. It's like, yeah. Yeah.
2: We should do an episode on Saudi Arabia.
3: We should. Yeah. All right, it's coming next. For the sake of time, I think I only want to do one more thing. The things we're going to skip for now are... Is it Nazi Germany yet? Yes, that can be a whole episode. We'll make that a whole episode. And that has so many people that have asked it that it deserves its own time. Yeah. And then people are asking about the migrant, migrant caravan. I don't think we have much to say on it. Not a whole lot to say on it. It's it's not that we have no stake that this hasn't, you know, like, I'm, you know, if you ask us, like, oh, has it been oversimplified in the media? Like, yes, obviously. But other than presenting the raw facts of like, These are who these people are, where they are, what they want, how far they are. Like, they're just facts, right? They're just there. So the last thing I want to talk about is feedback we got from a user about a previous episode about migration to Europe and the rise of nationalism there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a warning for uh, because I'm going to be talking about rape and sexual assault. That's one of the reasons I want to save this for the last one, such that if anyone else, like if anyone doesn't want to hear about that, this is a great place to log off. And like end this episode, we're going to be talking about statistics as opposed to like events and narratives. So, so that, that's the level of detail we will be going into. But if anyone really doesn't want to hear it, now's the time to go. So for those of
2: you who are still here. Okay. So this is from Victor Lippa at Victor Lippa. And he tweeted at us and said, hey, at Reconsider pod." Snopes published this some time ago. Have a look. And he sent us a link to Snopes, which is a fact-checking site. And I won't read the article, but just the title and the, the, the summary is Crime in Sweden Part 1 is Sweden, the, quote, rate capital of Europe claims that Sweden leads the world in sexual assault and rape are not supported by data. So he was challenging us because that is something that we had mentioned on a prior show.
3: Yeah, we hadn't, and let's be clear, we hadn't made that exact claim, and I don't think the feedback was saying you made this claim specifically, but the facts related to this are helpful where the claim the claim I did make was that the the rate of the reported rate of rape in Sweden had climbed significantly. Over the same time period of asylum seekers from the Middle East and North Africa coming to Sweden, and that the vast majority of new cases were by of new sexual assaults and rapes were perpetrated by people born in the Middle East and North Africa. So that was, that was the claim I had made. What's interesting, actually, is that Snopes points out that this was supported by a USA Today article, and I realized that is specifically where I got it, and it claims that the USA Today article is wrong. What is interesting, of course, about Snopes is that, you know, as as much as Snopes is a great way to call BS on something else, what's often the case is people don't necessarily dig too deeply into Snopes. They're like, oh, Snopes is the fact checker. So like if they are showing that a fact is wrong, like they must be right, right? And so even I have this tendency to just like agree with Snopes. And then I like dug further into the USA Today article and was wondering, like, where the heck are they getting all this stuff? First, let's make the conclusion. The conclusion is, is that of the two claims I made, one of them is probably wrong, and the other one is probably right. So the first claim I made was that the rate of rape increased significantly during this time period. That is probably wrong. One thing that Snopes even points out is that the rate of incidence of sexual crimes against everyone, but particular women, in Sweden, between 2012 and 2014 doubled so in that in that three-year period there was a doubling of sexual crimes committed against women however rape in specific was not one of the crimes that saw a significant increase it was molestation that was the primary driver as well as like sexual assault which i then looked up it can be like someone like grabbing your bum is a form of sexual assault Hmm. And I don't want to downplay that because like that, it, it's like, it's, don't do that, right? Like it is, it is criminal for a reason. You are violating someone's space, but it is like probably not like.
2: There are degrees.
3: There are de- yeah. It is a, it is a substantial level of degrees away from like forcible rape. The other thing that I learned that I didn't actually know from this Snopes article was that there are all sorts of false claims and reports that Sweden leads the world in sexual assault. And rape and like I, so I think part of the reason that this that this article was shared with us was that like I may have inadvertently mm-hmm. led credence to that like that that set of misinformation without having enough context around what I was around what I was talking about in part because like I was actually just not aware of that like that kind of like circle of misinformation. Now, one thing I think Snopes is missing. Right. So we, we don't see a significant increase in rape during the time period after a lot of asylum seekers showed up. What we do see, which is interesting, is that in the in the period of 2013 to 2018. So I'm actually just going to Wikipedia and going to the immigration to Sweden section and the crime subsection of that. I then like followed these links and they, they seem at least as credible as as the sources that Snopes has. Between the period of 2013 and 2018, the birthplace of rapists convicted in Sweden, the majority of rapists convicted in Sweden are from or were not born in Sweden. Hmm. Despite the fact that the percentage of actual immigrants in total immigrants in Sweden is uh, less than 15%. Hmm. So... Uh, Immigrants are more than three times as likely to commit rape than uh, than Swedish born than Swedish born people in Sweden. It is also the case that of the total percentage of people convicted of rape, 58 percent total had a foreign background. Forty percent were born in the Middle East and North Africa, despite the fact that there are only a few hundred thousand people born in the Middle East and North Africa in Sweden compared to a population of 10 million. So what this would suggest is that the like likelihood of someone being convicted of rape goes up by, you know, is, is like tenfolds higher if they are someone from the Middle East and North Africa in Sweden than if they were born in Sweden. And there's all sorts of other corrob- sort of like corroborating details around this that, that you can read. I'll add a link. But one of the things worth noting is that there's a bunch of other, like, crime statistics that are related to this that, that like, kind of vary in, in their level, but are – some of them are related. One of the things, though, worth noting is that if you add a lot of controls for education level, poverty level, and a few other things that have nothing to do with, like, where you were born or the color of your skin or your religion, that difference drops dramatically. Mm. So it turns out that, of course, the refugees coming into Sweden are very poor and uneducated. Right. Um, compared to the average native-born Swede, and the crime statistics of low-education, low-income immigrants uh, or asylum seekers is not as substantially different as the crime statistics related to low-education, low-income Swedes. So what this means is that of the two claims, again, one, that the rate of rape increased in any significant way, that appears to be totally false, and that the majority of rapes during this time period were carried out by foreign-born people, in particular those of the Middle East and North Africa, appears to be true. And that there is like an outsized, you know, an outsized likelihood of at least being tracked as someone who committed sexual assault or rape if you are born in the Middle East and North Africa in Sweden seems to also be true. So, turns out it's complicated. So, besides being grateful for the opportunity to reapproach, probably a, well, what is certainly a, like One, partially incorrect, but two, like contextually lacking uh, point that I made in a previous episode. So I'm very grateful for that. And thank you for sending that. The other interesting thing about this journey was seeing that, you know, even when you go read Snopes, something that I'm used to being the final word on something, there's more, there can be more to it. And you may have to keep digging. So like, and just realizing that for myself, that I had this tendency to think of Snopes as a final word. I hadn't I hadn't examined that before because when I read it, I was like, ah, surely I read something here that that you know it hasn't been listed yet, and it turns out Snopes isn't perfect either.
2: So what you're saying is the world is complex and sometimes it's hard to understand.
3: Yeah, and and Funny. I think the the hardest part. I mean, I don't think it's ever been. What's interesting is like, has it ever been easier to do this? I don't think so. So the the hardest part about democracy is like actually being informed enough to contribute to the discussion in an effective way, to vote in an effective way, right? To pressure your congresspeople in an effective way to actually make the decisions. And, you know, even on an issue as like kind of granular as this, and like and like discrete, right? Like you should just be able to get the statistics for this. Right. This this isn't something like, oh, like what is the you know how, how should we be subsidizing you know electric energy or something we're like, wow right that's that's oh my
2: gosh yeah
3: or not electric energy but renewable energy. That's like this huge thing. but like something as simple as this is like what are the statistics on this? it's that was hard. and I'm not even certain I'm right like I'm now starting to doubt all these sources that it came from. So it's it's sort of like the tragedy of being a democratic citizen is that you have to you have to you are you are faced with the burden of figuring all this stuff out where like i just can't expect anyone
2: to like get it right all the time. I think it's a nice opportunity for us to to reflect on our motto. You know, we say we don't do the thinking for you. And what, what what exactly do we mean by that? Cuz we're here for an hour with you every 2 weeks thinking about something, yeah. right? But we we're, we're not here saying, you know, x is the way that you should think about an issue. And I, I listening to Eric talk about his experience digging into this in greater in greater detail, what I find useful is hearing how someone who, you know, has been fortunate enough to either have a career at one point or, or an interest in this with an enough contextual depth and, and experience to be able to look into this, how that process looks like. And we can share that process with you. And that doesn't mean that we're smarter than you. It means that, you know, we're, we're lucky to be able to do, to do something like this that we really enjoy in in some way to a greater degree than a lot of people have with their careers so our word is not doctrine but we have the opportunity to maybe go into greater depth on some of these on some of these details than some people do yeah and that's not something you're often going to get on i hate the phrase mainstream media just a lot a lot of media outlets that that tend to pre- present issues as moral imperatives yeah so Hopefully we've shared some process that's helpful, but we're trying to not do the thinking for you. So that's that's this episode.
3: So thank you all for like all your great questions, suggestions. I think we're gonna be digging deeper into the US Saudi relationship is definitely a place we want to go. And I think it's also gonna be time to dig soon into, you know, is it Nazi Germany or is it late Weimar Republic yet? And of course, are there ways it's similar? Yes. Are there ways it's different? Yes. And and what can we cover to kind of help you decide? what historic you know we should learn from history what historical models are most effective for us to learn um how to avoid the mistakes of the past so we'll we'll jump into both of those um what hopefully this episode does is encourage you to send us more questions and thoughts and especially open-ended questions as opposed to you know hey here's a thing blasting republicans aren't i right will will not play as well with us um (laughs) Or Democrats. Or Democrats, yeah. yeah. It just happened to be Republicans in this case. But hopefully that was, an, you know, a good lesson in, you know, the thing you read that just says it's facts may not necessarily be facts, even though it said it's facts.
2: And with that. Can't
3: trust anyone anymore. It's
2: it, just can't, can't trust anyone.
3: <laughs> anyway, so keep sending in questions. We love them. We We want to do more episodes about them.
2: At reconsider pod on Twitter, yeah. on Facebook. That's the stuff. You can, if you enjoy these episodes and you feel like you're deriving some degree of benefit from mm. it, we're on Patreon. Patreon is a great way to help us keep sustaining the podcast, investing in marketing, getting it out to more people. That's slash reconsider. A buck a show. That's all we ask. We usually say this at the beginning, but we forgot. So check us out there. And if you don't want to go the money route, that's cool. We'd appreciate A review on your favorite podcatcher, be it Apple, iTunes, Podcatcher, or Google Play, or Acast, Overcast, whatever. Whatever. Leave us a review. We'd appreciate that. And with that. And with that. Don't let the
3: pundits or us do the thinking for you. Pause and and reconsider.
0: reconsider.
3: This is Xander signing off. This is Eric signing off. We'll see you soon.
2: Peace.